Money. It affects our everyday life. But how do we make more of it? Manage it. And make sure we make the most of our money. Welcome to Money Mindful, a podcast to teach and support you as you learn to manage your money. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of the Money Mindful podcast. This month on the podcast, I have put the spotlight on property investing. It's no secret that Australians love property and for good reason. However, I often hear people say, and I have to admit, I have said it in the past too, that the property market isn't accessible to the average person. And this is because to get into the property market, it requires an initial deposit amount. And this can be a barrier for a lot of people. The good news is that if you can put your head down and your bum up and get your first property, if you play your cards right and make educated decisions, it is certainly possible to grow your property portfolio. Today, I would like to introduce you to the lovely Helen Collier-Cogtevs. Helen is an author, educator, and property investor. She has had phenomenal success with building her own profitable portfolio. And for the past 15 years, she has also been helping others make a positive difference to their lives by teaching them how to build their own property portfolio through her mentoring program. Helen, great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Megan. It's a pleasure. Uh, It's so good to talk to you. And I'm so glad that we are finishing off this month with you because I have read your books and I know a little bit about your story, but I think that, um, yeah, your story about how you got into property investing is really inspiring and I really wanted to get you on the show to share it with my audience. So perhaps to get started, for those who don't know who you are and what you do, do you want to give us a little rundown of who is Helen? Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, you know, I, I run two companies. I've, my passion is mentoring and educating people. So I run Real Wealth Australia and I've been running that for nearly 15 years. Real Wealth Australia got created out of a frustration that I had with the industry. As a newbie investor going to seminars, I just got really tired and sick to death, really, of uh, being sold a property rather than actually educated So I I created my own company, uh, Real Wealth Australia, as as a direct result of that. But I'm also the CEO of Ealink Finance. Now, as an investor, what's the main thing we need? Finance. And again, I have such a beef with the finance industry. uh, And I'd gone through so many brokers that I just got jack of it one day. And I partnered up with a uh, broker who's got decades experience as a broker. And so from, from my perspective, finance is about educating the client as well. So it's kind of like a two-prong effect. I'm all about education. Yes, I teach people how to invest in property, but I also now teach people about money and money management because if you get that right, it makes building the portfolio really easy. So that's that's my focus these days, as well as being you know, a wife and, and a mum to a gorgeous 11-year-old. That's my greatest joy. Um, yeah, absolutely love that. I love how you just flippantly say, oh, yeah, I'm the CEO of a business and I also just happened to start this company because I wasn't happy with the way the industry was running. I, and 
you absolutely encapsulate the kind of women that I love to have on this show, Helen, because I love women who just go out and just do it, just get it done. But you're at the other end of, I mean, you're not at the end of your career, but you're very experienced in this world of professional um, property investing and you have companies. But let's go, let's go back to the start, Helen. How did you get to where you are? I mean, did you grow up in a really wealthy family and you're just like, oh yes, I'm just buying all the properties or let's, let's get down to the details. Cause I'm sure, um, everyone wants to know how on earth do you just go and create a large portfolio? I think you better tell us too about your portfolio and, um, and go on to just be able to start companies. Okay. Um, well, look, I certainly wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Uh, there are days when I wish I had, but no, I, I had a really, um, you know, I had a bit of a tough upbringing. Everyone's kind of got a story about their upbringing. So, um, you know, nothing, nothing different, you know, single mom, she raised us kids on her own. She worked, you know, two jobs, or if she had one job, she would do double shifts in order to earn an income. Uh, you know, to, to feed her kids. And so for us kids growing up, you know, we were pretty much on our own and, and um, you know, younger brother and what have you. And, um, you know, I kind of played mum early. I grew up quickly. And the thing is, though, we always rented. We couldn't afford to buy. And in growing up, I just remember we had this family saying, when it came to money, firstly, we never really talked about money. Money was, you know, you're just the child. It's none of your business. It's it's for parents. And even today, even today, as a grown woman, I still can't talk to my mum about money. She, you know, if I ask her how's her super going or how's her budgeting going or if she needs help, or she tells me to mind my own business. So that was the environment, whether it's because I, I've come from a European background, even though I was born here, whether it's cultural or what, but we just didn't talk about it. But the philosophy we had because we were always broke, you know, we were literally living hand to mouth week to week. And in fact, I remember going down to the local milk bar back in the day when there were milk bars everywhere. And we had an account with the guy where I'd go down and I would get some bread and milk and a couple of essential items and he'd run a tab for us. So, you know, it was that kind of thing. It was, that was the norm. We paid rent each month. And the philosophy we had was, we may do by borrowing from St. Peter to pay St. Paul. And then what we do is we borrow from St. Paul and pay back St. Peter. And that was, and as an adult now, looking back at it, you know, you, I can laugh at it and think that's just ridiculous because <laughs> I know better. But that was our philosophy and my belief system around money as a child growing up. There was no concept of, you know, not borrowing and saving. It was always borrow and just keep paying, paying, paying. Didn't matter what the interest was. We just kept paying. And, and again, as I look back, I think, my God, that's insane. How did we do that? But that's what we did because that's all we knew. So in my 20s, uh, here I am finishing school, went out into the big wide world. In fact, for a while there, I actually worked two jobs because mum eventually managed to, um, uh, to have a job that, earned her enough money that she could save a deposit to buy a house. And it was during the recession that we had to have, thank you, Mr Keating, 
What he did do by saying that was have me quit uni and then I went out to work full time. But because the interest rates went up to 18%, he continued to send me to work because I took on another job working in a restaurant as a waitress doing dishes. So I would work nine to five, uh, finish at five, drive to the to the restaurant, uh, start work at six, and then I'd work sometimes till, you know, well, most nights till midnight during the week. And then Friday, Saturday nights till 2 or 3 a.m. And then I'd sometimes go home, have a couple of hours sleep, get dressed and come back in the morning for the breakfast, for the Sunday breakfast run. So that was kind of my life. We, I have to say what mum did do was create a work ethic in us kids. So, you know, you want something, you work for it. You don't sit around on your ass waiting for someone to give it to you because that's never going to happen. And so once, once that all kind of settled down and I ended up with one job, I ended up in the corporate world, sure, on a, on a reasonable income, but I literally continued the philosophy of borrowing from St. Paul <laughs> to pay back St. Peter and vice versa. And in doing that, I just it racked up all this credit card debt, um, I had a car loan that I was making monthly repayments on. And so I was literally earning my pay packet. By the time I paid all my bills and credit cards and then I was renting as well, I had nothing left. Now, when you work and you work hard for your money and I was, you know, building a career, I had this attitude of bloody hell, at the end of each pay packet, I'd have bugger all uh, for myself. So I used to go shopping on my credit cards and, and my belief was, oh, I'm going shopping, darling, because I deserve it. You know, I work hard for my money. So the shoes and the bags and the suits and what have you, I deserved it, but it was all on credit. And it wasn't until um, I was in my late 20s and I remember, I think I was about 27, I remember, I'll never forget this, and in fact, I still share this story with my students today, and what occurred out of that, of what I'm about to share, I, I now teach today, but what had happened was, I had a guy six foot three, six foot four, knock at my front door, and he knocked on the door, and his name was John, and he said to me, you know, are you Helen? Yep, I'm Helen. He said, I'm here to collect your car. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I need your keys. I'm here to collect, your, repossess your car. You're five months behind on payments. I'm like, you can't take my car. I won't be able to get to work. And if I can't get to work, I can't earn the money to pay you back. Anyway, uh, I invited the guy in, you know, this massive, massive beast of a man <laughs> into, into, our, into my home and, and sat him down and had a coffee. And we sort of chatted and, you know, he was really pleasant. You know, he wasn't nasty or rude or whatever, but he was just obviously negotiating with me how to get my car keys so that he could take my car. <laughs> anyway, you know, he started talking to me about money and what sort of debts I had. And he grabbed a piece of paper and a pen. And what he asked me to do, he said, well, what are all your debts? And I was sharing it with him. You know, I had this credit card, that credit, I had every store card, Maya card, David Jones card, you know, every card you can have, I, I, was, I had. And we wrote them all down and he said, how much do you owe on this and how much do you owe on that? And, and I was bringing out all my statements. Most of them said, you know, reminder bills, reminder, reminder, reminder. And, you know, he, you, you could see on the statements, the interest rate was, uh, you know, the repayments were racking up because of the fact I wasn't even making the minimum repayment. And what he did was he literally put my debts in order. 
And then he said, now, how much is this? You know, how much do you spend on food and how much do you spend on telephone and whatever? And we went through all of that. And he said, could you, could you cut back on this and could you cut back on that and could you stop shopping for a while and could you do this? And, and, and I could see he was trying to help me keep my car. And so I kind of went, yeah, sure. You know, I was, as I was going through the process with him, he said, at the end of the month, you could potentially save $50 for memory. Again, this is going back a long time, but it was roughly, you know, about $50. And back then that was a lot of money. And he said, so if you took this debt and you put, made the repayment each month and put the extra $50 on it, by this date, that will be paid off. He said, then what I want you to do is take that repayment and the $50 and put it on the next debt. He said, so every other debt I had, he'd worked it out that I just had to make the minimum repayment. I'd stop shopping. I'd use cash only. Um, but I'd make the minimum repayments on all those debts. And, and basically what he did was he mapped out for me how I could pay off all my debts and get control of my money and start saving within, I think it took me about 12 months to do that. And I have to tell you, Megan, we're going to talk about property and property investing, but I think what we also need to talk about is mindset. Because to me, or for me, that has been the greatest challenge, yet the greatest thing I've ever conquered in my life is conquering my own mindset around money and, and, and not just money. I've expanded it to all areas of my life, learning about myself and the way I think and why I think the way I do and how I react to things has been the biggest learning ever. And so what this guy did for me on that day was have me understand how to manage my money and put me back in the driver's seat because I was not in the driver's seat. Money was driving me. I wasn't driving it. And so from that point, I was able to start getting control and I met my, um, my husband at the time. We weren't married, but we were dating. And, um, you know, again, you know, he'd, he was, he'd gone through a divorce. And so, you know, he wasn't earning a lot of money because he was paying support for his kids and all of that. And that was fine. Um, you know, we were living together renting. And as a new couple, you know, we couldn't afford much. So holidays for us were camping. So we had a you know, four-man tent and, you know, blot mattress and, you know, a few bits and pieces. And so we would go camping up near the uh, Victoria, New South Wales border. And it was one long weekend. It was the June long weekend, um, Queen's birthday long weekend, and I'll never forget it because we were sitting up at Barmer Forest and Barmer Forest is right on the Murray and it's all red gum and it's just magnificent. And being in the middle of winter, short days by 5 5 30 it, it was dark but you had the mist roll in and as you're sitting there looking at the forest with this mist rolling in and we're sitting around a campfire it, it was just beautiful and and I remember sitting um around the campfire you know rugged up with a blanket and we had our two little dogs I had one sitting on my lap to keep me warm and we're sitting there drinking a glass of wine and, 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 you know, I brought with me some papers, you know, of our superannuation fund and, um, you know, what we were going to retire on. Because I thought, you know, we're talking about getting married and growing old together and all of that. So I thought, all right, well, let, let's have a look at what that looks like. And it worked out when I actually crunched the numbers on our superannuation fund and I, and I 
used 8% compounding interest. So I assumed that our super fund would grow by 8% a year. Yeah, a little delusional these days, but that was the number I used back then. But even back then, when I extrapolated it out, it worked out at 65, we would be retiring on $28,000 a year. Now, I don't know about you, Megan, but I certainly couldn't live off that. And there are some months where I actually spend that amount of money, you know, on my portfolio and stuff like that. So to live off that over a year, uh, I would be destitute. And, it, and that was a, a, a huge, holy shit moment for Ed and I to go, oh, we don't want to live like that in retirement. So what are we going to do about it? So sitting around that campfire, we talked about, you know, do we go and buy shares? You know, do we go and start a business? But we were both working in the corporate world in which we didn't want to give up our day jobs because, you know, pay slips are really good. Lenders love pay slips. And if they, as long as they're consistent, um, you know, they'll lend you money. And the thought of quitting the day job to go and set up a business that was, I've never run a business before. I had no idea whether it would be successful or not. And so, you know, we saw that as high risk. Whereas the idea of investing in property for us resonated with us and, and it felt more comfortable. So we um, started reading magazines, you know, buying books, going to free seminars. And then we even joined a mentoring program to teach us because we kind of thought, well, you know, the thought of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and not knowing what to do scared the crap out of me, especially because I'd never bought a house before. Um, you know, I've never had that experience. In fact, when we bought our first property, I, was, I got this rude shock called stamp duty. I had to pay the government, what, $15,000 for stamp duty? For doing what exactly? That old <laughs> what chestnut, yeah. I exactly. think that gets a lot of people... Yeah, and, and $15,000, you know, 20 years ago was a lot of money and it was like a holy moly moment for us. So we scrambled. In fact, we borrowed it off a family member and, and you know, to settle the property because, you know, we didn't have that. And, you know, it was just, it, for us, it meant that we could con continue our corporate jobs while we built our portfolio on the side. But the key to all of that was getting an education and having a mentor guide us through that whole process. And, you know, we thought, although people at the time thought we were crazy, uh, we, we spent, you know, over $20,000. In fact, we took out a personal loan for this mentoring, for this 12 months of mentoring. And, you know, I can understand that our friends and family said, you did what? Are you crazy? <laughs> Are you idiots? What's the matter with you? But suffice to say that money has paid us dividends time and time and time again, you know, ever since. And I've gone on to spend, oh, I don't know, closer to 300000 in mentoring and coaches and all of that over the years. So I see value in it. Um, but back, uh, back in the day, um, when we first did it, people thought we were crazy. When I say people, our friends and family. Um, but, you know, it was, it was the best thing we ever did. However, you know, that's kind of where the birth of Real Wealth Australia came from because I um, ended up, you know, working for one of these education companies and um, what, I'd ha what had happened was I, was I was running a Saturday morning class, you know, doing my presentation on, you know, how to buy a property and the owner of the business uh, came and sat at the back of the room, you know, obviously to see what I was delivering on, no issue. And then during the break, he came up to me and he said, now, Helen, you're doing really well, but, you know, you're telling them too much. 
can you not tell them too much? And, and, and then he showed me this glossy brochure and he goes, what I think you should do when they all come back from the break, I'd like you to share with everyone this new development we've got. It's Waterfront, it's in Adelaide. You know, if you sell one of these to, to the group, you know, we'll pay you a commission of $20,000. And I just looked at him dumbfounded. And I just, I just, the adrenaline just pumped through my veins at that point because I, I, I'm like, I can't do that. You know, I'm here to educate them. That's what, that's what you brought me in on, not to sell them property. And, and in the end, I said to him, I'm sorry, I can't do it. You have to do it. And I remember sitting at the back of the room, my husband and I, and I was fuming. I wanted to quit. You know, even though I was just a contractor working weekends type thing, in, you know, I was still working in my corporate job. I was absolutely fuming. And so I wanted to quit and Ed said to me, no, these people that are sitting in the room, I don't know, there was about 20 people in the room that bought this program because of us, because my husband and I, they had spoken to us. They asked us all the questions about the education. What are we going to deliver on? You know, are we going to sell them real estate? Are we, you know, what are we going to be offering? Blah, blah, Here we are in our hard parts sharing. And then we've got, Oh, and here's a nice development for you. I just couldn't do it. So Ed, Ed said to me, no, 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 we, we've signed a 12-month contract with this company that we would stick it out. And he said, well, we're going to stick it out. And, you know, we're going to honour our agreement. And then at the end of it, we're going to leave. And so I begrudgingly continued those sessions. They were once a month. But I was grateful when the owner didn't come. He didn't sit on too many more of my sessions. You know? <laughs> um, suffice to say, probably a good thing. But, you know, it, it gave me the freedom to just truly educate the way I intended, you know, and freely through experience and what I'd learned and what new research I found. And, you know, I, I'm so generous in my sharing. I don't hold back. It's, never, it's not a covert operation with me. If someone's got a question, I'll give an answer and give it fully without it being half-assed. So, you know, it's about teaching people how to do it for themselves. So anyway, um, at the end we left and I was at a point now where it accumulated the pro our property portfolio and Ed and I agreed that I could retire. So at 37 years of age, here I am walking out of the corporate job on a Friday. I walked in Friday morning. It was bucketing down with rain, typical Melbourne weather. It was just you know, fully bucketing. And I walked into the, to the, the building, the tower, and uh, it was my last day. And by the time I left, I think I left early at about four o'clock or something. When I walked out of the building, the sun was shining. And that was my last day in the corporate world. And on Monday, I started my own business. I retired for two days uh, because I don't play tennis. Uh, I don't always, you know, I don't do coffee. I mean, I do coffees, but I don't want to make a career out, career out of doing coffee and I don't watch a whole lot of TV. I, I figured if I'm going to sit home, I'm going to be bored. So, um, you know, that's what had me kind of go, all right, I'm going to start Real Wealth Australia and it's, and it's going to be a true education company whereby I, you know, never sell real estate. I, I'd never associate myself with a developer who will, you know, and, you know, we've got steak knives for you type thing. So, so that's how, you know, Real Wealth Australia came about. Um, but it was all based on, you know, that passion for property and passion for real estate. Oh, sorry, a passion for teaching people real estate and how to do it in a step-by-step -step way because I know myself 
when I get overwhelmed with so much information, so when you're learning about property, you, you know, you're reading blog articles, you're reading books, you're going to seminars, you're going to webinars, you're reading magazines, you kind of go, oh, crap, where do I all start? It's just all too much. And my personality has me check out. I go, oh, God, I've just got to put all this down now. I can't deal with it. It's just too much. I'm in overload. And then what I do is I, you know, give it a few days, a week, whatever, and then I come back to it and go, right, let's just start from the beginning. Just give me one step. And I chunk it down into one piece. And I go, okay, great, I've done that. Next all right, now what I need to do is read this book. Okay, let me just read this book. Okay, digest it. All right, now what's the next thing? Okay, now let's step it up and go to some webinars. Okay, let me start going to a couple of webinars and asking questions. And, you know, so I just step out the process. Okay, now I need to go and do a budget. Let me do a budget. Okay, now I need to go and set my goals. Let me set my goals. And now I need to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a very much a tick box girl. So I have my list and I like to just tick boxes. And that's fundamentally how I ended up creating the formula for investing. Just tick boxes, you know, just one step at a time. So that way you're not in overwhelm and you can do it at your own pace and you do it at a, at a rate that you learn. So, so that's what I did in that space when it came to creating the education program. I just broke it down, completely unpacked the process from thinking about buying all the way to settling at the other end and, you know, sipping on your glass of wine to celebrate your purchase and your tenants moved in and your loans done and insurance in place and all of that. So that whole end-to-end -end process has just been methodically stepped out. And so that's what I've done inside of, of Real Wealth. Um, and I love it. It's like the best thing. <laughs> I love hearing about it. And I've, I've got so many questions I want to ask you now from what you've just said. But the first thing I, I think I want to do is just step back a little bit. And how how did you actually go about getting the first house? How did you get to go from having your car repossessed to, okay, now I'm actually buying a property and then being able to buy another property? I, I think often what we do is when we see successful people, we want to know the how. And I'd like to just get, you know, a, a, a little bit of information about that. But also, Helen, I want to focus on the mental attributes and the way that you are thinking, because I think actually that is the important piece here. But anyway, let's, let's yep. talk about how did you actually get the first house and, and then the yeah. second one? Okay, so to clear the debts, that didn't, that didn't happen overnight. That took time. And then from there, it was creating a savings regime. With Ed and I um, living together, yes, we're paying rent. What we did was we lived off my income. So my income paid all the bills, including whatever bills he had, um, and we saved his income. So or what was the balance of it? Because obviously he was paying child support. So whatever was left over, we were just saving, 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 saving. We didn't touch that. Now, it took us a little while to build that up. It didn't happen overnight. Um, and when you're buying an owner-occupied property, you can borrow up to 95%. So that allowed us to save a small deposit considering I didn't understand stamp duty, right? 
Though these days now there's a discount on stamp duty for first home buyers, which is a great thing. But that's basically what we did. We just saved like hell and we were vigilant about it. We didn't quit. We didn't give up. We didn't make excuses of, oh, this is too hard. You know, we had conversations around it. You know, believe me, oh, do we want to go and buy a, another, a, a new TV or shall we upgrade the fridge or no? Did we take overseas trips? No. We continued lifestyle uh, according to the budget of the day that we created it, which allowed for us to save this money. And we just kept the goal in mind, which was to buy our first property and just stuck to it. And within about 12 months, we were in a really good place, saving lots of money, had a deposit. Then we found a broker and went to him and said, right, based on our income and how much money we've saved, you know, can we buy a house? And the answer was yes. Now, at the time, I remember, and you can understand, I've had no money management skills. I had no control of money. So to then start having control of money was just, oh, it was invigorating. It was almost addictive in that it was like, wow, I'm never going to lose this control again. Um, and, and, I, and I loved it. So now when I picked up a pair of shoes, it was like, oh, yeah, no, I don't need those, you know, later. And I didn't have that urge to spend money on things that I knew were not going to get me the house. So the dream was now becoming a reality that, again, understand growing up, especially in my, you know, younger years up until my teen years, was never a possibility. You know, it wasn't until I was in my 20s when mum finally got a deposit to buy the family home. So before that, it was never real. It was never mine. It was never possible. Um, and so I was quite committed to the cause of, hey, we've done the budget, we're sticking to it, tax returns, you know, bonuses, you know, any kind of windfall, you know, um, you know, birthday money, you know, whatever, any, any penny we got, you know, we saved. In fact, we even had in our budget, you know, that we got what we call pocket money each week. So it might be 50 bucks, you know, to, you know, if you're going to go to work, you know, to buy yourself a coffee, because you've got to have some of those small little things and have that level of freedom to buy that. But if at the end of the week I didn't spend my 50 bucks and I only spent 30, then the 20 would go into a, a, a jar, a money box, and we would save that. So, again, just being vigilant about everything. You know, when we went shopping, um, you know, we still bought things, but we waited for them to go on sale. You know, we did pay full price. We had that delayed gratification and were comfortable with that. So when we saved up the deposit and the broker said, yep, the, the bank will lend you uh, money to buy a house, you know, we went, we went shopping and, um, you know, it took us a few weeks. But, you know, we found the property, went to auction, we negotiated at auction because it, it got passed in and, and, you know, and we bought it. And I have to tell you, it was, like even talking about it now, <laughs> you know, I get nervous. Like I can feel the adrenaline pump through my body at that auction going, I'm finally getting the dream. I'm finally buying my own home. Is this real? Is it going to happen? You know, all of that kind of thing. That memory is really strong for me. So when we finally signed the contracts, then I went through the mindset of, 
oh shit, this is going to fall over. Oh no, something's going to go wrong. The bank's going to change its mind. Oh, you know, and then when we had the whole stamp duty thing of, oh, and you know, you need 15,000 in stamp duty, it was like, oh shit, there's the bomb that, you know, I was waiting for. So we were then scrambling to find that money. But, you know, when we finally settled and moved in, it was like, okay, you know, we didn't die. We didn't go bankrupt. You know, our mentor told us that this was going to work. Our education told us that this is how it's done. And it's okay. Uh, okay, good. Let's do this again. Now, did we do it immediately? No, because we didn't, we were still now starting to save up our money again. You know, this time we cleared a lot of the, you know, cleared debts. Um, yes, we had a mortgage to pay, but we were still trying to live off my income and save Ed's. And, you know, we were, we were more than comfortably paying off that mortgage each month. So it was manageable and we were saving for future deposits. And so, again, you know, you know uh, corporate bonuses and whatever else, we kept piling up the money. But also um, we bought uh, at kind of, uh, kind of towards the top of the boom. So 12 months later, we had some capital growth in that property, went back to the bank and said, look, we'd like to draw out the equity and use that as a deposit on another investment property. And that's kind of how we got into our second property. And then we had two properties. We waited another 12 months, took the equity out of both of those two properties, plus our tax returns and savings, and then used that to go on and buy two, three, four more properties. Um, it got to the point where we had saved in one year, had enough equity, and our tax returns that we were able to go forth and buy six in six weeks. Don't recommend it. <laughs> it's paper warfare, but we did it. So it's the key is it takes time in the beginning. You, you need time in the market for capital growth to occur, but then you draw out the equity and then use that as a deposit on the next investment property. Oh, I love it so much. And what I take from what you've said there is you had grit. You just kept going for it because it's, it sounds like there were, it didn't just fall in your lap. You had to work at it to save the money and change your behaviours. But also what I hear is when things came up, like obstacles like the stamp duty that you didn't realise, you kept going. And I think that's something that is, um, that's not part of the how in terms of what you learn. Like, yes, when you, when you get a property, you go out and you, you research, you save your money, you get a loan, you buy the property. There's all these steps involved, but there's another layer, I think, behind the scenes that goes on, which is the grit you you've got to have the determination to follow through and actually do it and i i hear that from you helen i hear that that you have that well if i wish grit could be taught at school you know, because it's that it, you're right it's that determination to not give up and and i never i guess to say i never had it i don't know if i can say that i think i did but it was used differently. I used grit growing up to survive life. So it was all in survival mode. So you had the grit that, hey, if you know, you had to borrow from St. Paul to pay St. Peter. If you didn't have the money for St. Peter, you know, you'd go back to St. Paul and beg and borrow to borrow more to pay back St. Peter. And it was that 
determination to keep surviving. And I think that's where it's come from. But it's not what I want for people. You know, I don't want you to have grit to survive. I want you to have grit to prosper. But even with buying that investment property or that first home, even today with buying a property, there's still challenges along the way. You know, lenders now taking 35 days to even make a decision if, you know, whether they'll they'll consider you for a loan or, you know, you're getting to settlement and, and the, um, the vendor's not ready and, and needs to delay settlement or, you know, something happens along the way where, you know, you've gone to put a bid on a property, but someone gazumps you, you know, comes in and offers a better bid and you'll lose the property. You know, there's lots of that that happens along the way that could have you just easily go, oh, I've had enough of this crap. I'm out. I'm done. It's all too hard. You know, property investing is not easy. It, it, it is an easy process to follow, but where it's not easy is in the mindset. What do you do when the lender comes back saying, nah, sorry, we're not going to lend you 95%. We're only going to lend you 80%. Well, where are you going to find the other 15% deposit? Uh, bank of mum and dad, maybe, you know, you know, ask a friend, do a joint venture. You know, you've got to think outside the square and you've got to think on your feet to get the deal done. It's all about problem, um, finding solutions for problems all the time and not getting emotionally upset and attached to it, even though that's harder, to, uh, easier to say than done. Because when you've got this property, you've signed contracts, you're proceeding, in your mind, it's like, I own this, it's mine now. So when you get all of these obstacles and hurdles that happen, you know, it, it's, it does play on your mind at times where you're like, oh, shit, you know? Am I going to get this deal done? Am I going to lose it? Am I going to lose my deposit? You know, is the solicitor that I've got the right one for me? Is the broker going to deliver on the loan at the right time? You know, what else is going to go wrong? So, you know, you do get the vanilla deals that just go through smoothly. And believe me, I've had, I've had some of those, but not all my deals look like uh, vanilla, you know, <laughs> you know, I get all, I get rainbow colors, you know, <laughs> you know? I get a, a technicolor kind of range of issues happening and you do need the grit to get you through. But what I picked up from what you said though, Helen, right at the start was that, and I think this is the difference for some people is that you were open to something different as well, because you can't, I mean, I don't, I feel like people don't know what they don't know. So if mm. you've never been educated around finance, I don't expect anyone to be an expert, but if you've got an inkling that that's something that you want to find out about it and you're an adult, well then, you know, that's on your own shoulders. Like you, there's such a thing now in the world called Google and <laughs> Everything is Googleable. So, you know, if you if you decide that you want to make some changes, you can. But I think that that's where the mindset comes in at the start, where you were were saying that you knew you wanted to do something different. You knew that the super wasn't going to get you where you wanted to go, but then you were open to the possibility that you you could invest, you could do something that could change change your life did you I'm curious did you think that in the beginning did you have that bigger vision that you might end up having a really large property portfolio or was it just the one property in the start the dream was a portfolio the reality was in my world remember how I said oh if it's all too big and too much I shut down or check out I stepped it back and just went let me just get one 
one is a miracle in my world, <laughs> let alone 30, you know, just give me one and I'd be really happy with that. When we got the one and I realised I didn't go broke and I didn't die, it's like, well, why can't I do it again? But you, you, you've touched on something, Megan, and, and I haven't shared this yet, but I said earlier that this is a mindset game, but my mindset, I, I am a student of life. You know, I, I believe that, you know, and I share this with my students, I, I do a little diagram and I tap into in what I don't know that I don't know. And the more I tap into what I don't know that I don't know, the more I learn and I never know everything. And the older I get, the more I realize how little I actually know. So in that journey of mindset, I've done lots of courses on mindset. You know, there's lots of people out there that I've had mentor me, you know, I don't know if you want me to rattle a few off, but you know, there's plenty out there that people can Google different companies that run mindset courses. And there was one that was really significant for me. And I even remember the, you know, the date I often say to, to people that my life began, even though I started investing, you know, 2000, I feel like my mindset switched in July of 2004, where I'd done enough mindset work on myself that I had my massive epiphany where I kind of went, oh, I get it. You know, like, for example, I lived in a world of perfection. Everything I did had to be perfect. I, you know, you know, I have to be the perfect mother, have to be the perfect wife, have to be the perfect employee, you know, and then I started my business, had to be the perfect business owner, had to be perfect at marketing, had to be perfect at mentoring, had to be perfect at numbers, had to, oh my God, it was exhausting until I realised it was a whole lot of rot, <laughs> that perfection only existed in my own head. Yes. And, no, it doesn't exist anywhere else, only in my head. And when I realised that and changed the story or the record from Helen, you don't have to be perfect, just do your best. That's all you can ever do on the day. So whenever I come and start my day, it's Helen, do your best today. I don't want to go in the day going, oh, yeah, I'll try. Uh, think about it. Uh, no, I'm gonna, it's going to be a perfect day. And when it's not perfect and it goes to shit and then you get so disappointed, so angry at yourself, you, you know, you either boot, you know, you boot yourself in the bum, you know, you, you know, you're constantly, you know, ridiculing yourself and all of that was my world based on perfection. When I was, when I was free to give that away, you know, even when I was, you know, as a, as a mother, I, you know, I caught myself getting into that mode of being that perfect mother after I'd given birth to my to my daughter it was like I had to be perfect mother you know I had to make sure she was well fed you know her nappies were changed she had enough stimulation I was reading enough books that I got you know that um that the house was clean that dinner was on the table I had this illusion of perfection of what it would look like for the first six weeks of her life I didn't get out of my pajamas if I showered for the day it was a miracle you know so it was like, no, 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 no. Because I, I, those, old, those old thought patterns were kicking back in. It was like, no, 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 Helen, give up perfection. Perfection's an illusion. And you're only going to fail if you hang your hat on perfection. So just do your best. So if doing my best was, you know, staying in my pyjamas, but, you know, my daughter was fed and, you know, and, and I ticked all those boxes, great. 
if I didn't get dinner done, no, no problem. Hubby could do that. And if that failed, this takeaway. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, you know, measure myself to the point where it was a delusion. And, and I guess it's the same with, um, you know, with investing. It was, it was just really trying to stay real. Um, and, but, but, uh, but I ran, I ran the, the mindset and the learning of investing in parallel to mindset. And I think collectively that really has made me a student for, for, of life. You know, I love hearing people's stories. I love hearing about people's journeys. I, I love all of that. It's, it's a, cause life is a journey. And this is the kind of thing that you have to learn it yourself. Yeah, I mean, people can teach you this stuff, but you have to make those connections for yourself. It has to land for you because, uh, yeah, I I see that that's a common thing and I'm definitely no stranger to the perfectionism <laughs> deal. <laughs> but but when you, when you realise that that's actually just about being afraid to get it wrong, you know, and then it sets you free and you can just go ahead yeah. because... For sure, I um, I know for sure you haven't mentioned this, but for sure you've had mistakes along the way, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, of course you have. But you I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, we should talk about that. Um, <laughs> Helen has a book called Fifty Nine Biggest Mistakes by made by property investors, and you, there's fifty nine mistakes there. So I'm sure you can come up give us plenty of examples, but what do you think are uh, the top two, let's say, that people make when it comes to property investing? I've completely changed track here, but we let's go oh, with it. That's okay. We, we can go back to the other stuff. But um, look, never getting started is, is the first problem. You know, if you don't, if you don't ever get into the market, you know, you'll, you'll never grow, you'll never learn, you'll, you, you'll never create any wealth for yourself. That's, that's the first thing. And But second, Sorry. And yeah, and that's the problem with being a perfectionist because you hold back. You don't start doing things because you've got to do it perfectly and you don't want to fail. Uh, that that ties in beautifully. Look at that. It's like yeah. <laughs> That's right. You know, you always want to get it right. You know, and even with, you know, you've got to find the right property. Oh, the perfect property. The one that gives you positive cash flow and capital growth. You know, when clients say to me, "Oh, Helen, I want a property that delivers on both." I go, "That's called perfection. Good luck finding it." And I go, look, you will if you, if you go at it long enough and hard enough, but, gee, that's too painful. Why don't you just focus on one thing and do it really well to the best of your ability, you know, and then, and then balance it up with the opposite in the next deal rather than trying to find one deal that does everything because it literally does your head in. So, so it's really, uh, you know, getting, getting into the market from the perspective of perfection really does hold you back. And I can tell you, I nearly got divorced over that very thing in our early days of investing where I was finding all these deals. I was presenting them to my husband and, you know, I'm saying, Oh, you know, this deal's got, you know, good cash flow. If it was cash flow we're looking for or capital growth, it's in a good location. It's, you know, desirable by tenants. You know, I was ticking all the boxes type thing and, and he was canning it. And, and, it, and in the end, I just said, mate, I'm doing all this work because the, I'm the researcher in, in, our, in our marriage, in our partnership. And I said, I'm presenting you with all these deals and all you're doing is canning it. And he's like, well, you know, he would then quiz me 
but I didn't have the answers off the top of my head because I'd been Googling and, and read all this stuff. I never wrote anything down um, or I print out the odd document or page here and there. Um, it wasn't until Ed and I were doing a mindset course <laughs> that I had this epiphany that my husband's an engineer. Again, we worked in the corporate world together. What I didn't realise is he was canning all my deals out of fear. However, had I put it together in a, like a business plan and handed it to me, honey, here's a business plan and like presenting it to the board because that's what he used to do in the corporate world. I then pulled my due diligence uh, together or my research on property into a 40-page document. I still do it today and I teach this very thing to my students today still because my husband is so analytical and being that engineer needs all the data. So when I pulled it together or when I learned this about him in the course and I went, no wonder you're canning all my deals because I'm just big picture thinker that I am. I'm just throwing all the data at you, you know, rattling it all off in my head, nothing documented. And him being the analyst is going, well, I can't make a decision on a few numbers and a conversation happen. You, you know, you need to give me more than this. So I'd go and do more research and come back and tell him more. But telling him more wasn't documenting more and it wasn't satisfying his fear. So he was always going to hold us back. And then, anyway, to cut a long story short now, with these documents, he just flicks through them now and goes, yep, 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 asks me a few questions. I might go, back, go away and, and dig a little more on a particular area, um, come back, answer that question. It's like, yep, 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 all right, let's proceed with finance, you know, or, or putting in an offer. And, you know, it was just that whole, again, mindset, understanding him made the journey easier so again it took away this whole perfection getting it right whatever i just did the best i could with the information i had on the day and that's all any of us could ever do and i think you've just without um directly saying it that's another mistake people make they don't do their due diligence they don't actually research <laughs> the well they had the the definition of their research is going on to realestate.com and looking at properties. So they just go from zero to a hundred kilometers an hour, just like that. You know, it's like, okay, oh, what about property, honey? Yes, let's invest. Okay, great. Let's go on to realestate.com and start looking. And you know, they're looking at all these different properties. They're ringing up the agents. The agents are telling them whatever they want to hear. They haven't really done the homework. I mean, they might go. They might go to the bank and say, "Can I borrow some money?" But they haven't structured a strategy around their situation in life. In fact, I have thirteen steps that you know a student goes through to create the strategy, and that's that roadmap. Now, got the roadmap. Now let's go shopping for real estate because the roadmap dictates what I should be buying rather than going on to realestate.com and just looking at anything that looks good, feels good, sounds good. It's now a strategic and disciplined approach to selecting a property that suits you, your circumstances and time in life. Not everyone else's. It's not a one size fits all that allows you to move forward in any market purchasing a property based on your criteria. And when people do that, that's easy. That, that makes investing easy. The jumping on a realestate.com bullshit is 
overwhelming. It causes, you know, has people make mistakes because they're not fully understanding what they're doing, and, but they're going on this emotional journey of, oh, it feels good and wouldn't it be nice to own a property? How do I know this? Because I've done that too. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And I've read your book, 59 Biggest Mistakes uh, Made by Property Investors, and it's it's the reverse. It tells you what to do by telling you what not to do. And Helen, how do we get a copy of this book? Um, well, I'm happy to provide you a link, Megan, so that anyone wants a copy, I'm happy to give them a, a, an electronic copy so they can get it straight away. They can download it immediately and have a read. Amazing. That is so good. I am going to, what am I going to do? I'm going to put a link in the show notes and I'll let, I'll remind everyone, this book is uh, a really helpful educational book if you do want to go down the route of investing in property. So Helen, that's incredibly generous and I really appreciate that you're providing that link for people to be able to go in and, and read it. And for your audience, you know, listening to this, Megan, I just want to say that I've written this book in very conversational speak. It, it's not corporate speak or, um, you know, um, you know, it's really simple language because I want to make the whole process easy for people to understand. The more you understand, the more confident people will become. But not only that, I go through all the 59 mistakes, but I also give you solutions. I go, well, this is what you need to do to avoid that. So there is a solution to every problem um, that's in the book. So, yeah, I kind of keep it light and fun and, you know, I'll, I'll share a few stories along the way and the odd joke and, you know, but I'm, I'm very, very matter-of-fact in the book as well because I don't want to bullshit anyone. It's just give, I'm giving you the information. As I said, I call a spade a spade, so don't tell me it's a shovel. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I like about the book is because there's so many things to the process of being a property investor that you just don't know you don't know. And this book points it out, which is what I think is really helpful. All those little nuances and things that are involved in investing in a property that, yeah, you just don't, I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, you just go out and you just buy a property. You just find one and that's what you do. But there's yeah. there's other steps involved in terms of where you're going to buy why are you going to buy a particular place? What type of property are you going to buy and for what reason? I won't go into it all now because um, you could read it in Helen's book because she's generously giving us access to it. And I'm, I'm actually really grateful for that, Helen. I really appreciate that you, you're making it available to everyone. I have, we're getting towards the end now, and, but I do have, I've got a couple of more questions for you. Um, one is, did you say you have 30 properties now? Is that what you said earlier? I've had up to 30 properties. I've sold some over the years. I've got 20 currently. Okay. How I have two investment properties. <laughs> okay. And I'll have to I, work on that, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm certainly not overwhelmed by it or anything, but there is a little bit involved with the management of of the properties and I'm curious with 20 properties do you lose track like how do you keep track of of 20 easy you, you've got software for that <laughs> just keep entering all the data I mean we use a simple package called zero um, I do have a financial controller 
um, because I do run businesses as well as a portfolio. So I do have someone in charge of the day-to-day -day stuff, you know, bills being paid and recorded for tax purposes. So that come tax time, I just give my accountant access to zero and it's all easy. So that's how you can make it easier. But I do pay someone, but I'm at a level now where I need a, a you know, a a person to look after all of that. But for, for you, you know, if you use zero, for example, you know, to add in a few statements each month, um, you know, wouldn't be wouldn't be difficult, I'd imagine. I mean, yes, there's a little bit of work to do, but nothing too complex. I have a I have an Excel spreadsheet at this stage for my two properties, but I do use uh, accounting software for for my business. But I find it interesting because I just recently got a invoice for a plumbing job and I was like, I don't remember being told about this. And I rang my property manager and, and it just occurred to me, I wonder what people do when they have, yeah, 20 properties, how that, how that goes about. Are you getting phone calls every week from property managers? Well, that's, that's the, um, I think that's the myth, Megan. You know, I could understand that you would think that, but actually, no. You know, we get the odd call to say, hey, tenants vacating, um, you know, you know, this is, we're going to put it up for rent, you know, this is what we're going to, this is the rent we're going to advertise it for, you know, we'll do, they do the inspections, the exit inspections, and they interview tenants, they take care of all of that property manager does it all and then basically just sends us an email or, or a phone call to keep us informed so with um uh you know with some of our properties the property manager actually just electronically has a has an online system so we just get a notification online to say hey you know for example just recently the oven in one of our properties stopped working you know do you want to fix it yourself do you want to do you want to us to get a quote you know and you're literally just ticking boxes online submit it they take care of it and then just update the online system um, for other uh, uh, property managers that don't have that technology they just call or email so it's you know we, we've chosen good properties that tenants want to live in so they don't sit there vacant and the tenant selection process is such that the property managers are finding us good tenants, so we're not worrying about our properties being trashed, you know, damage being done, you know, rent not being paid. Yeah, we have the odd little thing happen here or there, but they handle it and just keep us informed. So it's it's not really that much work in, in the whole scheme of things. Oh, that's good to hear. When you've got when you've got your processes down, Pat. And I I, I was interested to Helen. What's the byproduct now of having such a big portfolio? Like, has it? I've spoken about this on the podcast before, where it's you have a goal and you're going towards a goal, but actually, what happens is all this other amazing stuff that you never you never knew was going to happen, but they're just the byproduct of that goal that you were going for. Yeah. Well, that that's. That's so true, Megan. Um, with building the property portfolio, I knew one day, someday I would retire. I guess I shocked myself when it happened to be a lot sooner than I thought. And that allowed me then obviously to start Real Wealth Australia, which at the time of investing was not on the radar. So when I'm financially free, kind of going, oh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I really love property. I really love teaching. Um, you know, I've got a real gripe with the industry and all the property spruikers. Hey, let's set up a company called Real Wealth Australia. So I had the luxury and the privilege of doing that because of the portfolio. And I knew in my future that one day I wanted to set up a foundation. 
And so running Real Wealth, doing, doing my thing, um, we have um, a real close affinity with a country called Vanuatu. Uh, we travel there, you know, frequently, um, you know, and we have lots of friends over there and, and we holiday with our family over there and all that kind of thing. But what what had happened was back in 2015, there was a, you know, because they experienced cyclone seasons and it was um, March 13 um, of 2015 that Super Cyclone Pan went through. So this was a Category 5, in fact, they were calling it a Category 6 that went straight over Vanuatu and um, it absolutely devastated the place. And, and my husband flew into Vanuatu, into Port Villa, four days after Cyclone Pan because it took him four days to clear the, the runway. And... Um, I went in seven days after him and I, or, you know, I literally just took, I had 90 kilos of tarps because I knew that the people in the village, because they're living in tid sheds, would have nothing over their heads. So I took 90 kilos of tarps that I just, I went around to Bunnings and Kmarts and Targets and wherever I could and bought them out of tarps. Um, and then, and I also... Qantas so kindly allowed me to take a chainsaw over as well because the country they'd sold out there were no more chainsaws and to kind of clear the debris and the damage and to create access for essential services over there they needed to clear roads so but there were no no chainsaws anyway so they allowed me to take one over and and I just remember um, because we know a lot of locals I, I asked um, one of our good friends to take me into the village where she lived because I wanted to see the damage. And um, I just remember going through uh, and I just, I was so emotional looking at how poor they are to start with. And they're like, it's like dog sheds really um, were just destroyed. And, and, they, and their stuff was just all laid out on the ground because they're trying to dry it. You know, there was a metre of water that went through that village and I literally just had, you know, bags and, you know, of, of tarps that I was just handing out to whoever she, you know, because she could speak Bishlam or I couldn't. So she was, you know, obviously playing translator for me. And then she introduced me to um, a pastor who um, owned a, who ran a, a church, but also a kindergarten. His wife was the kindergarten teacher. And there was a, a building that had some bricks around the bottom of it, uh, about four bricks high. And what he'd done was, due to all the debris being everywhere, he, he got some timbers or 4B2s wet, you know, um, and kind of attached them somehow to the bricks and then found a couple of cement, a couple of corrugated sheets and, and did like a half roof um, for the kindergarten kids to sit under because it was so hot and dry after Cyclone Pam. It's like Cyclone Pam took all the moisture out of the air for, for a lot of days. And these kids, I could see them all huddled under this little bit of sheeting and I gave him a tarp to put over so that the kids could sit underneath it. And it was a dirt floor. All the books and, and stuff were destroyed. And I just remember looking at that and, and, um, and I just said to my husband, Ed, I can't leave that in good conscience and walk away and sleep with myself, you know, and be good with myself. I said, we have to do something about that. 
and he was with me. And, and as a result of that, we, um, we, have a, we had a ute um, at the time and we went and bought bricks and loaded up the ute and took the bricks there and went and bought some cement and stuff. And um, the locals um, were just kind of helping us build this kindergarten. And in the end, um, people were giving me money, as in expats were giving me money and supporting us in doing this. If they weren't giving us money, they were donating timber or corrugated, you know, iron or, or you know, colour bond, whatever. And when it comes to, you know, having a foundation in my future, I never thought it would be a foundation over in Vanuatu. It was literally Mother Nature that said, okay, Helen, it's time for a foundation, darling, and this is what you're going to be doing. (laughs) Because when I went through that village and the devastation around the schools, because the kids were just running around, if they had the school system still going, it would have given the parents the opportunity to clean up, you know, set up, you know, you know, and regroup as well as maybe continue to do their jobs and work and what have you for those that had employment. So word got out amongst the expat community and I had three other women that said, we love what you're doing, Helen, we want to join you. And that's how Sham Foundation came about. So Sham is really just our initials, you know, it's S-H-A-R-M. But So it's, it's Steph, Helen and Robin Mug. You know, it was just really simple. We just called it, you know, foundation. So we registered that as a charity over there. And I think we've done about 71 projects so far. So we don't just do school buildings now. Like we, we had uh, steel, uh, blue, blue scope steel do- donate hundreds of metres of roofing iron to us where we were able to go in, fundraise, and as well as re-roof a lot of school buildings. But the ones we've been building, we make them cyclone-proof so that the community can use it uh, during cyclone season. But now what we do is, um, oh, look, I've taken hundreds of books over there where I donate to the schools, Um, you know, bras. Who would have thought that, you know, we, we wear a bra you know, and us ladies, it stretches and we go, you know, had enough of that, chuck it or the wires pop out and we throw it and we just kind of take it for granted that we'll just go down and buy another bra. But over there, they don't have that luxury. When you go into a store, the bras are really flimsy, um, cheap Chinese type of things and often aren't big enough for Vanuatu women so they really struggle with bras and to then go and buy a quality bra like we would buy they they would have to spend a week's wage on it so as you can imagine they don't really have the bras unless unless they're donated so I've made it my mission now I think I've got about three or four hundred bras that I've saved up so far waiting for my next trip over there Um, because I've done this a few times I literally just set it up with the mummers we use a community hall I get all the mummers to come around so you know young girls all the way through to the older women and they come around we just lay out all the bras good quality secondhand bras okay they've stretched a bit the wires are still good though and and I had one lady oh god she broke my heart she um she tried on a bra And, you know, she just put it over her dress and, you know, you could see that it was going to fit. And what she did was she just popped her hand underneath and unhooked her old bra and threw it in the air like a, thank God I'm getting rid of that thing. But when I looked at it, what she had done 
was the side part of the bra. She had cut it and then hand-stitched in some calico to give her extra length around the back because it was too small. But if you know anything about calico, it actually bunches and it becomes like a rope and it was just cutting into her. And, you know, and I just thought, oh, my goodness. And it wasn't the first time I've seen that. Lots of the me Vanuatu women will go and buy some calico and, you know, hand sew it into their bras to give them what they need. So that's where I kind of went, well, listen, I, you know, I travel frequently over there. I'll take, I'll just take lots of bras and women are, you know, freely giving me their bras and, you know, and it's great. It's just great to see them so happy over something we just take for granted. Oh, Helen. Amazing. I love it. Okay. Everybody, we need to send our, well, do we, do we, should we send our bras to you, Helen? Okay. Please do. Please do. Uh, give me the details of where, where should we send them? And I'll make sure it goes up in the show notes as well. Okay. Do you want the address now? Yeah. Yeah. What's the address? Yeah. It's suite eight of 18 Sherbourne road in Briar Hill, three zero double eight. And that's in Victoria. And so we can just pop our bra in a express post bag or a a post bag and just, and send it in and you will take them over. We don't need to do anything else. You don't need to do anything else. I'll take them. All right. We can definitely do that. And I'll make sure all this information goes in the show notes. So if you're driving the car listening right now, don't worry. It'll be on the website. You just need to go to www.moneymindful.com.au forward slash EP 48. And anyway, you just go to the, my website and you'll be able to find it. Don't worry. I put all the notes in. I think we better wrap up, Helen, because I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I, I have a feeling we've, we might have already gone for over an hour. So I want to say what a great story to end on. And thank you so much for giving me the time today to tell us your story. I think it's really fantastic for other women to hear what is possible. So thank you. Oh, look, the pleasure's all mine, uh, Megan. And I, and I'm, you know, when I, when you contacted me and let me know what you were doing um, and how you really do focus on women, you know, that just made my heart sing. So uh, kindred spirit is what you are. So thank you for doing what you do, because uh, I have no doubt it certainly helps um, and inspires others, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you for allowing me to be part of that. You're welcome. Okay, well, there you have it. What an incredible story. Helen is awesome and I'm so glad that you got to hear her story because I bang on about it all the time on this podcast. We really can do whatever we want to do, but we just have to pull our finger out and do it. You know, yes, there's challenges and it's not always easy but the journey is amazing and the payoff is great just by what Helen was saying about the Sham Foundation that she set up. Who would, who would have known that that would have come out of that? And I truly believe that we face challenges and hard times whether we follow our dreams or not. So if we're going to feel some discomfort either way, why not feel uncomfortable going for what we really love and what we want to create? Okay, so don't forget, if you have some old bras hanging around, please send them to Helen. I will put the address in the show notes. And also, we are 
super lucky to be able to get access to her book. So don't miss out on a copy of that. She is generously um, giving us access to her book, 59 Mistakes, uh, Biggest Mistakes Made by Property Investors. So make sure you get onto that. You just need to go to www.moneymindful.com forward slash EP48 to get the book. As always, if you want to get to the bottom of what holds us back when it comes to money and learn how to change your money mindset and connect with your future self, the results that you want to create on purpose, get in touch anywhere that you follow me. If you want to stay in touch between episodes and stay up to date with all things Money Mindful, get on the get on the mailing list, follow me on Instagram and Facebook. All the links are in the show notes. Until next time, have a beautiful week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Money Mindful podcast. For more info, visit moneymindful.com.au. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe. And remember, the information in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account your personal circumstances or goals. Please seek professional advice for your own financial needs. Remember to have fun along the way.